Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Weddings are important, and because they are important, I want couples to grasp how crazy of a thing it is to get married in the first place. I get asked to do a lot of weddings. I'm 31 years old, so I have a lot of people uh, around my age who are getting married, those inside the church and those outside the church. So I get asked to preside over a lot of weddings, and I agree to participate so long as couples agree to engage with me in at least a few what I call premarital counseling sessions. And part of this is born out of a desire to know the couple well enough to actually be able to speak at their wedding in front of their friends and their families and their loved ones. But it's also my attempt to prevent the hope for marriage from falling apart in the future. I hope it comes as no surprise to you that more than half of all marriages in our country today end in divorce. I don't want to add to that statistic. So I try to have premarital counseling sessions with the couples. And on more than one occasion in worship, I've shared with you that I ask the same question at the beginning of every premarital counseling session. Tell me, if you can, about your last fight. Tell me you can, if you can, about your last fight. It's a great icebreaker, and it makes people super-duper uncomfortable. And I love asking the question because what the answer to that question is usually tells me what the next premarital counseling session is going to be about. And yet I know how uncomfortable that question is. I've watched countless couples squirm in their chairs wondering who was going to bring it up first. Well, he never puts the bowls in the right place in the dishwasher. Well, he wrote a check for something that we didn't agree to spend money on together. He went out and bought a truck and I told him not to buy that truck. Am I speaking about anybody? If I am, I apologize. And sure enough, someone always caves in, even if it takes 30 seconds or 30 minutes before someone will finally tell me what their last fight was about. And then we can finally get to the good and the difficult work of approaching marriage from a theological perspective. But that's not the only question that makes couples uncomfortable. No, we quickly move on from the subject of fighting and arguments to the subjects of sex and children. Are you having it and do you want any respectively? And couples sink even deeper into their chair and their faces become even more red when they realize they've got to talk to somebody about what happens in the bedroom. But of all the questions I ask, of all the things we discuss prior to marriage, there is one subject that makes people uncomfortable more than any other, and it is the subject of money. And it should be expected. Money is at the heart of the majority of divorces in our country. And so I generally encourage couples to discuss, to share with me how they currently handle finances and how they are hoping to handle finances on the other side of I do. We discuss habits and practices that can prevent the kind of deception that tends to rip couples apart over their bank accounts and their credit cards. And then I ask a question that stops everyone dead in their tracks, pun intended. How much money is enough money? How much money is enough money? Eyeballs always stare back at me with nothing but confusion and disbelief. What do you mean? How, there's no such thing as too much money. And so I elaborate. And I say, is there an amount of money that should you ever be able to achieve it one day, you won't want to get any more? 
Or have you ever considered a top salary that once you earn that amount, anything you earn more than that, you'll give it away to charity? How much money is too much money? How much money is enough money? And someone in the crowd interrupted Jesus one day. Hey, Lord, tell my brother to divide up the inheritance with me. The man probably has just cause, even if during the time of Jesus it was the elder brother who would receive all that was given in the inheritance. Who wouldn't want the Lord to speak about these kind of things, to make things divided evenly among a family? But Jesus snaps right back. He says, hey, who made me your judge? Who made me the arbiter of all your problems? Apparently, Jesus' work is bigger than the incidental patching up of family problems and financial woes. And then Jesus does what Jesus does best. He tells a story. There was a man who was doing very well in his career. At first, he used the excess cash to fill up his house with all sorts of trinkets, all sorts of things designed to show other people how wealthy he was. First, he filled his house with original paintings, but then he ran out of wall space. Next, he redid his entire wardrobe, but then, of course, his closet was full. And finally, he decided to buy an extra car, but there wasn't enough room in the garage. What's the poor guy to do? What do you do when you run out of space for all your stuff? And he has a vision. He says, why not tear it all down to the ground and I'll build an even bigger house to fill it with even more stuff than before. And so that's what he did. And in the midst of plans for reconstruction, I was thinking, oh, that's going to go over there. and That's going to go over there. He says to himself, you've done good, old boy. It's time to relax. Time to eat and drink and be merry. And just then, a booming voice shatters all the new windows he's had installed. You fool! You fool! This night, they are demanding your life. And whose will they be now? Much to our chagrin, the line between evil and foolishness is frighteningly thin. Up until this point in the gospel, Jesus has been using those qualifiers to uh, interchangeably to attack the scribes and the Pharisees, the powers and the principalities. But now he turns it against us. You fool. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because our lives are about more than what we have. But Jesus, what about my 401k? But Jesus, what about my nesting? What about that other house I bought? Lord, what about all the stuff I've accumulated to show people how much wealth I really have? All that stuff. All that money. They are the hopes of the well-off the envy of the poor, and they will never really have them. It's nothing more, nothing else, and nothing less. Our world, all of this, even here in the church, sadly, it's run on avarice. Avarice, it's extreme greed for wealth and material goods. It's the lie we were fed as children. It's the lie we still feed to our children. It is reinforced with every magazine cover, every Instagram post, and with every commercial on TV. Friends, happiness is yours for only $9.99. If you buy this thing, your life will be better. If you take this pill, your waist will be better. And it is all a lie. Every bit of it. Because contrary to that false narrative, something that is hammered home relentlessly throughout our lives, we are not defined by the number in our bank accounts. We are not defined by the art we hang on our walls or what kind of car we have in our driveway. It's poverty, not wealth. It's death, not life, that are the ways by which God saves us. 
Regardless of whether we're wealthy or we're poor or we're somewhere in between, all of us in Jesus' eyes are people who are sin-sick with our insatiable desire for more. And not just more, but more, more, more. We clutch at all that is around us rather than ever opening our palms to somebody else. We'd rather receive than give. Earn all you can, save all you can, because it's an eat or be eaten world out there, right? I don't know about you, but this parable really stings for me. It just won't leave me alone. It confronts and it convicts me. Because Jesus tells a story in which a man does what all of us do with our avarice, what all of us do with our greed. We pat ourselves on the back and we congratulate ourselves for all we've accomplished. Oh, you graduated with that good GPA? Wow. You definitely deserve to do whatever you want this summer. Oh, your grandchildren are really adorable and their parents are paying for your next vacation? Sounds like it's time for you to finally relax and start enjoying your retirement. Oh, you got that promotion you were gunning for? Good for you. You definitely have this whole adult thing figured out. You know, I've got this job. It's a really good job. Some of you like to remind me that I only get to work one hour a week. It's a really good job. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got an adorable son who brings smiles to everybody with eyes to see. Good job, Taylor. It's time to relax. Eat and drink and be merry. But here's the really interesting thing about all of that stuff. From the GPA to the kids to the promotion to the bank accounts. We think we earn them. Or at the least, we think we deserve them. When in fact, every one of those things is a gift. They are a gift. They are only good because someone or something was good to us. Jesus sets this man up as a paradigm for everything we think to be good and right and true. He's fiscally responsible. He's earned a good life. And yet the man is only a master of a life that is completely and radically out of his control. He is nothing but the captain of a ship that has been taking on water since it first left the dock. You see, Jesus builds up the man as this pinnacle of financial responsibility only to knock him straight down to the ground. You fool! This night... They are demanding your life. And now whose will they be? Up until the Lord interrupted this man's life, the fool has been living in a monologue. The whole parable is just him talking to himself, congratulating himself, rejoicing in and with himself, all the while forgetting that his good crops, his good portfolio, or whatever the thing is, was always first a gift. And we can only have a gift when there's a giver. Or to put it in a very different way, isn't it just such sweet and great irony that the man who had it all discovers that his things had him the whole time? And those things have us, don't they? We lay awake at night not thinking about all the good we have or giving thanks to God for all the people who make our lives possible. We lay awake at night with worry. And not just worry for worry's sake. We worry about our stuff. Did I make the right investment? Am I going to be able to afford that new cell phone I bought? Was it a bad idea to buy that extra TV I didn't need? And yet we keep acquiring new things over and over. And we try to control them, or at the very least, we try to control our lives with the accumulation of things such that it makes us appear as if we have control over our lives, which we do not. We want to be rich. And if we can't be rich, we want people to think we're rich. 
However, unlike Jeff Bezos and unlike Warren Buffett and unlike Bill Gates, the only really rich person in the world is Jesus Christ. You and me, we spend our whole lives in pursuit of wealth, material and immaterial, only in the end to come to the greatest poverty of all, death. There's a big turn in this parable. It has a frightening and final tone. One that lingers long after the man is called a fool. No matter how much we make, no matter how much we accumulate, we all die in the end. No one dies rich. No one dies poor. Everyone just dies. I pity the fool. Because the fool is me. The fool is all of us. We live in these self-satisfied, fat, and ignorant monologues about all that is good in our lives, and we forget, mostly because we avoid it, that no matter what we do, we will all die in the end. No matter what. It doesn't matter how many things we have in our garage or what the number is at the end of our bank account, we all die in the end. That's a frightening word. But in Jesus Christ... The one who tells the story precisely because it frightens us to death. All is turned upside down. The Lord offers grace to both the wicked in their moral poverty and to the rich in the death of all their stuff. Jesus is a new way in which all of our pointless pursuing and all of our foolish incomprehension becomes something we can actually call good. We can call it good because Jesus is there for us in our death. What does St. Paul say? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not life and not death. Not how much money we have or how much money we don't have. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We might not see it. We might not believe it. But there is a greater wealth in the salvation of Christ than in every bank account in the entire world. And the best news of all is that it is ours for free. Free. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's not cheap. It's not even expensive. It's free. It's the only really free thing in the world. And it is free for you and for me and every fool the world will ever see. There is no greater news than this. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? Oh Lord, we are your fools, bumbling through this thing we call life. We confess that we are grasping hold of things we think give us meaning, and yet they do not. We lay awake at night worrying about things that do not matter, and we forget. We forget, O oh Lord, that we are already all rich in your mercy. It is your mercy, O Lord, that confronts us because we are mindful that we have not loved you. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We haven't even really loved ourselves. And you say it's okay because I love you. It is your love, O Lord, that invites us to a place like this. It's your love, O Lord, that offers bread and cup to us, even when we don't deserve it. That's why it's the only really free thing in the world. Because there's no reason it should be for us, and yet you have made it for us anyway. Your Son is the greatest gift the world has ever known and ever seen. 
It is truly priceless, and you have given it to us. Amen.